out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, What is All This Scream Time Doing to Our Children? Covering every film in the Scream series, we will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I saw a free-range cow on the side of a mountain today, so I'm excited. (laughs) How is California? It's beautiful. It's blue. It's green. It's everything that I could want so far. It hasn't really rained yet, so we'll see if I still feel like that in a week. Is that a thing? Is California rain like a thing? Well, north Northern California, that Pacific Northwest right, right, right. is like kind of foggy. There's been a lot of fog and a lot of like cool weather, but not straight up rain. Sadly, we don't have a special guest today. Our special mm. guest for this episode, who we love and have been trying to have on for a long time, got into a car accident yesterday. He's okay, thankfully. Yeah, thank God. But... You know, we didn't want to we didn't want to ask someone to watch a movie tonight and come on and talk about it tomorrow. So it's just us. Yeah. Just us bums. And uh, we much well wishes to Austin for a speedy recovery. Yeah, for real, for real. This feels to me like the first series, I guess maybe the second series after Twilight, where you really kind of need to have seen all of the movies in order to understand them. Yeah, we're going to find out about that on our next episode with Mariah, (laughs) who is only going to have have watched the third one. But yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It feels like this, this one is not only in conversation with all of the other movies, it's also in conversation with the first one in a huge way. One of the late reveals, one of the many reveals in this movie mm-hmm. is about how like a character is related to someone in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't think they mentioned really this character up until this point. I, but uh, Well, they did a little bit. They like said his name a lot at the okay. beginning and like how he was a okay. psychopath. And Randy like calls him was like Billy Loomis was a total psychopath. But I, I do think it relies very he- heavily on you being invested in who Billy Loomis is and like knowing all of that plot from the first movie. So, oh, and before before we get too into it, I want to say that Bumtober is happening on our Instagram story. Hop over to Instagram at Cinema Bums. Every single day you can vote for a series. Uh, we, we are pitting two listener submitted series against each other every single day. And uh Whoever wins at the end of the month is going to be our first series of 2022, which we are very excited and very frightened to see what it will be. Truly a spooky season indeed for us here at Cinema Bums. (laughs) Truly. Um, Okay, today we're talking about Scream 2, original title, Scream Again. Oh, that's good. (laughs) It is good, isn't it? Yeah. It would have been harder to come up with the third and fourth yeah. titles yeah. if they had called it Scream again, but I like it. Directed once again by Wes Craven, written once again by Kevin Williamson, who I found out is from New Bern, North Carolina. No, no kidding. The man went to ECU. So I think I'm pretty sure that's in the, the same uh, area code as me. The score is once again by Marco Beltrami. Although, put a little star on that because we're going to talk about some controversy with the score later. Okay. okay. 
This movie runs two hours on the dot. It was released December 12th, 1997 by Dimension Films, which is the horror imprint of Miramax. That is uh, just under a year after the first one was released. It's interesting because this one pretends to be a several years later sequel. Yeah, two or three years after. Which is really interesting given that most sequels pretend to be an immediate follow-up and actually happen two to three years later. (laughs) This being like an almost immediate (laughs) follow-up that takes place a few years later is cool. That's um, the thing about Quiet Place Part 2, which I really loved Mm -hmm. earlier this year. It starts like literally like a minute after the first one ends. Oh, wow. But when you have like little kids, like the difference between a kid being like, 10 when they filmed the first movie and 13 in this movie is a <laughs> yeah. big difference. Yeah. So you can tell. But everyone in this one has makeovers. Yes. This one had a budget of 24 million. So that's more than the original's 15. And it made 172 million, which is uh, just 1 million less than the first one. Wow. So a slightly bigger budget, still not a huge budget. Uh, and made pretty much the same amount as the first one, which was a big success. So I think they were happy. And and it was also positively reviewed at the time. And uh, a lot of critics at the time said they thought it was better than the first one. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Emmett, what would you explain? What, what would you tell the listener about Scream 2? Okay. Scream 2 is a movie about our young protagonist, Sydney who a couple years after the tragic events that took place at her high school in the first scream, she's at college. Um, she's trying to put that stuff in her past. She seems mm-hmm. like she's in, she's got like good friends and a stable relationship with a non-sociopath boyfriend. At the same time, the book by Gail Weathers, mm-hmm. I can't even talk about without blushing. My <laughs> Lord. What did you, oh, what did my... you think about Gail Weathers makeover in this movie? when when dewey's like oh and your streaks look good i was like yes yes they do i was like wait can we bring that part of the 90s back people are always bringing like dumb parts of the 90s back let's bring that back let's bring cool haircuts back i have written down gail weathers with this makeover emmett bait (laughs) i mean yeah yeah uh, not wrong uh yeah i mean heart eyes it's almost enough to make someone want to no it's not it's not enough to watch friends let's see okay so she's written this book and the book has been turned into a movie the movie follows she wrote a book about the what happened in the first movie about what happened in the first movie her like tell all of what happened in the first movie and then it got made into a movie in the world of these movies and that movie is almost as we see in movie world is almost a direct like remake of the original. It's like a shot uh-huh. for shot of the original, which is just, I loved all of the parts where you <laughs> got to see like reinterpretations of the movie. I just thought that uh-huh. was, I thought that was brilliant. We've got this movie that's coming out called stab the beginning of the movie. A young couple is murdered in the movie theater in front of a bunch of people at the premiere of stab it starts to like spin up this like whole publicity thing of like, like, Oh, is the movie responsible for this? Uh, Isn't it all the violence in the media that's causing this sort of thing? 
Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're like, is it a copycat killer? Should Sydney be worried or is it not actually a serial killer? Just like some whack job who liked the movie too much. Of course, it slowly unwinds, much like in the first movie. Everyone is a suspect. I think in this one, even more than in the last one, you're like, could Sydney be it? Oh, that like thought occurred to me. I was like, could she be it? I thought it could be Dewey. Mm. Like, I was suspicious of everyone this go around in a way that I wasn't as much the first time because mm. I think there's a couple of I think there's a couple of people in the first one who are on the table. And they play with that well. But in this one, it's really like almost everyone is on the table and you slowly kind of get given piece by piece, like who's not on the table anymore in yeah. like different chase sequences. Yeah. The the fun thing about this series is that it really is a genre matchup. There are these like slasher movie sequences, uh-huh. which are like, you know, these big stylistic tense scenes where somebody that gets killed or narrowly escapes getting killed yeah and then the other part of it is really like a whodunit like it is like a murder mystery Mm -hmm. where you're just wondering the whole time who the killer is both both movies are like this yeah slowly adding little wrinkles to the mystery yeah suspect everyone else which i think is what makes them better than just something where like a bunch of people get killed by freddy krueger for instance where you're like you, well, you know who's doing it the whole time. You don't really know why. And he's creepy and it's awful. But it's like, it doesn't have that. Ten- to me, it's not as tense because like, I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. To abbreviate things a bit, as like murders continue to happen, they're like, they piece together that it is in fact like copycat killers. They're killing people with like the same names, like names are lining up as the people who've been uh-huh. killed in the last round. And they're pretty sure that the person is targeting Sydney. Sydney's becoming more and more paranoid um, and her paranoia kind of infects the second half of this film too, in a really cool way. There's all of the, the big thing I guess that carry over from the last movie is that Leah Schreiber's character um, who had been accused of raping and murdering uh, Sydney's mother. Mm -hmm. uh, And then when it turned out it was actually Billy Loomis who had done that, had been let out of jail, like let off of death row um, and out of prison. He is back like in the world and like trying to be a person, but people still haven't forgiven him because of the crime that he was accused of, even though he's been proven completely innocent. And so he's like the whole time on this mission to clear his name in the public Mm -hmm. eye by having an interview with Sydney or something like some sort of public appearance with Sydney that will like clear his name. He's a little attention hungry just in general. That is like, that is like his personality is that he's looking for his 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Leo Schreiber, Emmett's favorite actor. Favorite actor. Uh, and his character is named Cotton Weary. It's such a great <laughs> name. Which is so good. He's just like a lot of fun in this because he's intense and a little sinister. And you're like, it could be him, but it probably definitely isn't him, but it could be. That's a delicious part of, of this film as well. I'm like watching him like try and play the angles, but also like knowing that he's like hemmed in because people still like look at him askance because of like events from the previous movie all very interesting so basically all of the gang from the all of the surviving gang from the old movie shows back up you've got dewey you've got randy yeah. the film nerd mm-hmm. uh you've got courtney cox's gail weathers and you've got sydney and of course and Le- and cotton weary and yep. they are all on the campus of this college basically as these murderers are getting crazier and crazier 
I don't even know. Like, I don't know how to explain this movie because mostly it is just like, like you said, it's like sequences and then like whodunit sequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then at the end, she's trying to like escape the, the FBI is going to take her. Like she's get, she has like some secret service guys or something who are like helping her, following her around and like protecting her. And they're going to drive her to a safe house somewhere, her and her friend. And then the car gets hijacked at the last minute by the ghost like by Ghostface, like they're in the car and in that sequence of them getting out of the car is one of the tensest things i've ever seen yeah they like wreck the car and Ghostface is knocked out and they have to like crawl over his lap and out of the out the window of the car across uh-huh. his lap and they're like certain that he's they're, like you're certain that he's gonna jump up and get them and he doesn't i think that's brilliant because Wes Craven knows that you're going to be scared in that moment, no matter yeah. what. He doesn't have to give you the jump there. Uh-huh. Like it's, I don't know. It's like scarier because he doesn't pop it on you, almost. I don't know. There's then this movie ends in a theater, which I love the trope of movies like ending with a climax in a theater. Uh-huh. It's like it's always just interesting and weird and crazy and like. Well, Sydney is a theater major. She is also a theater major. Which we'll talk about later. We'll talk about her theater teacher. This <laughs> one scene performance. Oscar worthy. That is truly incredible. <laughs> uh, we'll also talk about her one scene of being a theater student and how it is not Oscar worthy. <laughs> so, so it ends up, they're in the theater. There's all these lights and crashing sounds and stuff going on. And the killer is there. It's revealed to be a guy that we haven't even talked about yet. Kind of a guy who the movie has not talked about for an hour before. Yeah, kind of a happens. guy who the movie has just been like, he's here. Um, he's kind of gross and weird. And he like knew a lot about the stuff that happened before. And like, that's kind of like the only hint you get is that like this guy's kind of a creep and like knows a lot about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you get like a skeezy vibe from him. He's a, a young Timothy Oliphant wow okay and like his first i think like technically his third on screen role but like his first hollywood blockbuster movie i think he's i i mean for such a small and weird of a part as that is yeah i think he does good stuff with it anyway it comes to the end of that he comes out and like like takes the mask off he's killed her boyfriend or he's like got her boyfriend like tied up and has like she has been like slowly over the course of the movie thinking that maybe her boyfriend is involved with it and like getting more and more suspicious of him. Uh-huh. And right up at the end, like he's like got her at gunpoint and he's like, I don't know, you can untie your boyfriend, but he might also be helping me. Like he might be my helper. Like it, we couldn't have done that. Like I couldn't have done this by myself, just like the first time around. Like there had to be two killers for everything to have worked. And he's like, Could, was it your boyfriend? Like, do you untie him? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you should do. And then he shoots her boyfriend when she goes to untie him. So it's definitely, so it's not him. Well, I don't oh, know. Oh, but it is so, it is like, were there three? It's kind of a recreation of that great scene from the first one where it's Stu and Randy are the only people left alive. Uh-huh. And Sydney hasn't seen what's happened. And they're both like, he's the killer about yeah. the other one. You yeah. know, and and in that one, we as the audience know. In this scene, we don't know. Yeah, who's being true and who's not? It's just the boyfriend who is suspicious. And the last thing he says is, "I would never have hurt you, Sid," which is very ambiguous. And then 
boom, out of the woodwork pops Billy Loomis's mom, <laughs> who we have seen throughout the course of this movie as a kind of competitor reporter with Gail uh-huh. Weathers, but we've mostly ignored as being like a funny bit character that yeah that is like being like kind of trampled on by Gail Weathers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. She shows up as Billy Loomis's mom, and she's like, "I love," and I love this part where she's like. My motive isn't as 90s as his was. It's just good old fashioned revenge. And she's like going to kill. He's, she's going to kill Sydney because Sydney killed her son. And she's played by Laurie Metcalf. Oh, the so mom good. from Lady Bird. That. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's all those pieces are <laughs> fitting together now. And of course, wow. it all ties in perfectly because Laurie Metcalf is at home in the theater. Oh, she, she is. She belongs in the theater where this movie ends. She does. Yeah. And and so then it was her. There's a, a final sequence, like a final very scary sequence and like very tense sequence in the theater when Sydney manages to or like re- rescue herself, basically. Oh, Gail Weathers is there too. Gets shot early on and kind of yes. goes down. And right as she's so right as as the Loomis Loomis's mom is about to kill Sydney, Liev Schreiber shows up. The mom like kind of offers him a devil's bargain and is like, "Look, if I kill her, you're the last survivor. Don't you want fame? Like I can make this all look good." He looks like he's considering it, and then Sydney is like, "I'll give you the interview," and he shoots the Loomis lady. The survivors are Gail and Dewey, who are both very injured. Yeah, Dewey looks like he gets killed in this movie. Like, even more than when he walks out with a knife in his back in the first one. I was, like, (laughs) sure that he was dead. Yeah. And, like, the joke on this is that he got stabbed in the exact same place as before, and that saved his life because he had so much scar tissue there. And so, like, the joke is that the guy was such a copycat, I guess, that it didn't work. I don't know. Dewey is... An interesting character in this movie. Yeah. So I knew that in the movie that's coming out next year, uh-huh. Scream 5, which is just called Scream, unfortunately, the like adult returning cast is Sydney, Gale, and Dewey. Okay. Interesting. You've just spoiled the next two movies for me, so well, I, that, I appreciate that. that. Was, I'm sorry, but that was like common knowledge. That's what I've known yeah. through all of these. Yeah, and yeah. so I say that to say, in this movie, they kill both Dewey and Gale. Yeah, and that's I was true. like, what's going on? Yeah. And then they're both okay in the end, which also kind of happens in the first one. Yes. The fast and loose with who can live through what in this series. Yes, that is very true, because lots of people sustain less than what Dewey does in the in the film room sequence and die. So the only other thing to say is that like the final ending of this movie, because it does stick around a little bit longer than the last one did Mm -hmm. is, is Dewey getting wheeled off to the ambulance? Oh yeah. And Gail, instead of taking her big moments to report this story, hops in the ambulance with him to be with him. Right. Like showing some sort of dedication to him over, which was their yeah. whole like arc and conflict through this movie is that he they have they they looked like they were together at the end of the last movie they are split up at the beginning of this movie mm-hmm. he's like kind of disgusted with her for like profiteering off of everything that happened to them and like feels like she's cold and heartless yeah like, yeah. She, like she did everybody dirty and he's just there to protect Sydney which at first when he shows up I was like is he or is he the killer and then I felt bad later for suspecting Sweet Dewey 
Well, when he shows up, it felt like they were setting up some sort of romance between him and Sydney in yes, their first it scene. Did. It did. And they like that hand movement that he does when he like takes his hand away when he hears that she's dating someone. There are so yeah. many small acting choices in this movie that pay off beautifully. There's mm. a moment where her boyfriend like she comes and sits down at a table across from her boyfriend and he moves a chair back over to the head of the table from where he had put it next to him for her to sit next to him. Uh-huh. And like it's not the focus of the scene at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird thing because I I didn't feel at least like that was set up in the last one at all. And then that's not paid off in this movie because we really stand Gale and Dewey together as a couple. But it does seem like Sydney and Dewey just have this like insane chemistry in one scene of this movie. Yeah. It's also like for him, like really messed up because his sister, like his sister was killed in the previous movie too. Which he never acknowledges. He never talks about. But I think that like that's part of the whole like super protective thing over Sydney is mm-hmm. like Yeah. You know. Yeah. And like he can't of course like he can't even talk about it because mm-hmm. how could you? He's Dewey is also kind of kind of giving like his audition for Batman in this movie. He's like very dark and brooding. Yeah. <laughs> And he has like some like physical disabilities as a result of the damage. Yeah. Like the nerve damage from the last movie. So he has like a limp and his arm is all messed up. Kind of like in a weird placement on the spot. Yeah. The arm is like, yeah. like held stiff to his side. But yeah. it doesn't seem like it seems like that's something that he's doing because it hurts, not because he has to. Because later there are scenes where he like sprints and he can sprint. It's like not right. as fast as somebody else, but he's like somewhat able to to manage. He also just shows up. So it's a little bit ambiguous as to if he's still a cop, if he had to leave because of his injuries, like how he has just sort of shown up here to hang out mm-hmm. across the country at this college and protect Sydney. But anyway, him and Gail ride off in the ambulance together. Then all of the press like comes to Sydney mm. and she redirects them to Cotton, sort mm-hmm. of giving Cotton his 15 minutes yeah. of fame that he's been longing for the whole and movie. telling them that he was the hero that saved everybody, which is yeah. more or less true. Although Sydney did a good amount of saving herself before he showed up. And he was acting sketchy. Yeah, and he was acting sketchy the whole time. But, yeah. you know, all water under the bridge now, I suppose. Mm. Well, that's Scream 2, Emmett. Would you say flop or bop? I would say bop. I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. Scared yeah. the bejesus out of me. How about you? <laughs> flop or bop? I would say bop, too. I liked it a lot. Um, I definitely didn't think it was anywhere near as good as the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a couple, like, elements missing from the first one. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did really enjoy it. It was kind of similar to like a latter day Jurassic Park movie, where I was like, the story of this is whatever. Like, it is really just like an excuse to see how good of a tense sequence you can make. Yeah, like it is really like a collection of sequences, mm-hmm. and I think that also makes sense when I learned about like the behind the scenes of how this movie was put together. But to me, like, I I would say I really liked the first act. Mm-hmm. After that, there was stuff I was, like, just sort of, like, more cool on with the plot. But, like, the sequences, I mean, uh, kind of starting with, like, this incredible 
sequence that's sort of like the beginning of the first movie with Sarah Michelle Gellar just first off of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as like a sorority girl who has to watch the sorority house while everyone else is out partying Mm -hmm. um, and is being stalked by Ghostface like that sequence into the dress rehearsal sequence into the sound recording studio sequence Mm -hmm. into the car sequence like is such a flex. I totally see why this dude, Wes Craven, is like one of the greatest, one of the greatest horror directors, action directors, tension directors ever. Yeah. Like from how he stacks those sequences, they're so well done. Truly. But like the car sequence feels like it costs as much as the first movie did. (laughs) Like it's so much bigger than anything we've seen so far in this series. It's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that part is nuts. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, what, what behind-the-scenes stuff is there, then? Last week, we talked about sort of through the first movie coming out. Mm-hmm. And some of the effects of the, the first movie was, since it was such a surprise hit, suddenly, like, this is the new thing, you know? Uh-huh. Like, horror was slasher movies with, like, unknown actresses kind of raunchy mm-hmm. in the 80s. Then it got done to death and now no one's into horror. And now like this is a big deal. And we're going to get teen horror. We're going to get horror with established actors. Mm-hmm. There's like an arms race for the other things Kevin Williamson has written oh. to like scoop those up and put them into production. Uh, one of which is I Know What You Did Last Summer, oh, the movie, uh, and the TV show Dawson's Creek are both his that were like, immediately put into production that's hilarious so when he when he sold the original script he sold the pitches for a second movie and a third movie they were like five page treatments mm-hmm. for what these were going to be the other movie the last movie the original comes out december 1996 january 1997 it's going huge they start to talk about a sequel march it's greenlit with the $24 million budget and with Craven, like, signed on to direct two and three. Uh, and then they film it from June till September, and they release it in December. Holy balls, dude. <laughs> what? So, like, an insane turnaround. <laughs> That's just nuts. They were just like, this thing is hot. We need another one yesterday. Who edited that? Like, what superhuman... That is crazy to me. I mean, I mean, less than a year from the original, and like this, they had five pages of a story for the sequel. That's all there was. It's not that, it's yeah. not that there was a script. It's not that they had been talking about it. You know, right? Was the idea sequels suck? We'll make a good one. <laughs> so here's like the crazy thing okay. about this movie. Okay. This is like the famous production thing about this movie. Before they started filming, like. Very shortly before they started filming, the script for this movie was released onto the internet, leaked out. Now, would that have been, that would have been in the late 90s internet? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. These movies have really made me question, like, (laughs) anytime they mention, like in the last movie, I was like, oh, they had cell phones. And then when I read this, I was like, oh, they had internets. And there's a lot of talk about Tarantino in this movie. And so hmm. I just realized that I must think that everything is more recent than it actually is. Interesting. It gets leaked out onto the internet. So everyone who cares about it has read it. Now, this is an original script. 
that was supposed to be the shooting script. Mm-hmm. But because of the response, they change it. In the original script, it's pretty different. So all the characters are the same. But Dewey has been uh, transferred as campus security to this college. That's hilarious. To like to take care of Sydney, uh-huh. which does sound more funny. But like that's something where I'm like, why change that? Because it just really explains why he's yeah. there, in what capacity he's there. Uh, the roles of Randy and Joel, who is Gail's cameraman, are switched. So Randy is now working as Gail's cameraman, and uh, Joel is just like Sydney's friend at okay. college, who's cool. there hanging out with her. Um, and now the big changes are at the end, we get to the big reveal. The killers are Haley, her roommate, and Derek, her boyfriend. Okay. Those are the two killers who have been doing everything. Then we're like in the confrontation. Mama Loomis, Laurie Metcalf comes in and kills both of them because they have like gotten her to Sydney. And then we get the reveal that she is, you know, she's not Debbie Salt. She's Mrs. Loomis. And then Cotton Weary comes in and kills her. So the end is pretty much the same, but the two killers are different. Interesting. Then there's like a little bit more. This is kind of weird and I don't want to totally get into it but basically there's like that's like as far as the written script goes and then there's like basically a paragraph describing the ending like recently kevin williamson came out and said that this was actually like a decoy script and not like a real one but i think it's very clear from the response that this was the real script and like okay if there is any truth to that decoy thing it's maybe just that this little last paragraph he wrote which sort of ends with like Cotton killing Gale, him and Sydney like beating each other up. That maybe that was like not something that was going to be filmed huh. or something just put in there. But it is very clear that everything up through huh. that was like was what they were about to shoot. Weird. So that leaks out. Now everyone who cares about it, this movie knows who the killers are before it's even filmed. Uh-huh. Which is like not what you want for a murder mystery. Yeah. So Williamson dives into these intense rewrites to like rewrite the whole script. So it'll be different. And this is like, as they're filming. So apparently, apparently it's normally that like they get the scene the morning they are shooting it. Uh Like those rewrites are coming like the day of, and apparently the actors who are playing the killers. So I guess all the fans and probably just him. Cause you got to think Laurie knew, but they like didn't know until the morning they were filming those scenes that they were the ones who were actually the killer. Like n- just nobody knew if they were the killer or not while they were filming it because they didn't want it to leak out. Oh, that's awesome. That does that's interesting why then everyone in this performance is giving extreme ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Is like acting their ass off to not give anything away. I also think like a slightly more cynical read is that the characters are a little bit less well drawn than the first one. Yeah. Especially a lot of the new ones that like yeah, contributes yeah. to that too. Um, but yeah, that just really made sense to me why it feels like it kind of feels like what's so strong are like these sequences. And then especially in act two and three, like everything else is a little murky. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even mention when I listened to the amazing sequences, like the sequence on the lawn which is so crazy where they're trying to like keep him on the cell phone and track down everyone who's outside talking on a cell phone. 
which is like really funny until it's not. Yeah. So basically it was just a stressful shoot and this kind of like drove a wall between Craven and Williamson Mm. that I, that is rebuilt because he comes back to do four, but like, I think they were not very happy. So did he not do three? He didn't do three. It's the only one not written by him. Okay. Interesting. Okay. That's pretty much the main thing. There's some other things. They were also on a really tight schedule because a lot of them were in TV shows at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I read that Neve Campbell was like shooting the sitcom Party of Five mm-hmm. on Mondays and Tuesdays. And then like Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, she was shooting this movie. Damn. I also, I don't think we talked about this last week, but uh, we talked about the guy doing the voice on the phone, which mm-hmm. is a big part of these movies, Roger L. Jackson. Uh, and Craven's thing is that he like has him physically on set, like hidden in another room or somewhere. And so he's like really talking on the phone to the people in the scenes. Obviously, that's not the audio we're hearing, but it's like giving the actors. The actors are really hearing his voice throughout the scene. That's awesome. And he's he seems like just a really funny guy from everything I read with him. And he talked about how uh, like all of the cast were like freaked out and uneasy about him because of this uh except for sarah michelle geller who he said would just talk to him when they weren't <laughs> filming and over the phone about regular stuff that's hilarious <laughs> uh i mean if if you if you fought like the lord of hell himself you're not really going to be worried about ghost space on the phone <laughs> well speaking of that i thought this was really funny craven had like the whole issue with the mpaa last time where they like wouldn't give him an R rating. He had to like cut it down like eight times. So apparently he submitted like a much, he shot like a bloodier cut than he was expecting to submit Uh and submitted that to them. Like knowing they would be like, this is too much. And then he could cut it down to what he actually wanted. Uh And they were like, yeah, this is good. (laughs) In just one year, (laughs) in just one year, look at the progress that was made. Scream one really out here opening doors for people. <laughs> and then he had to be like, oh, well, actually, this is what I wanted to do. <sighs> yes. And then the other the other controversial thing is that Marco Beltrami, who scored the first film to really amazing score for the first film, came back to do this one. Although there are two like major pieces by other composers, mm-hmm. uh, which is one, a song by Danny Elfman which plays over the whole dress rehearsal scene and mm. comes back in the finale when they're in the theater. Oh yeah. Like that whole theme is a song by Danny Elfman and um, like Dewey's theme, kind of like the Dewey love theme. That's this like guitar piece. Every time he's with oh, yeah. Cox at the end, that is from an unused score that Hans Zimmer did back in the day. Wow. Huh. And this was because I think this is standard practice because the score is normally the last thing that gets done. Mm-hmm. So they were having test screenings where they just put in like tracks from other movies. Uh-huh. So people have some sort of idea of what it'll sound like. Oh uh, yeah. This, and, and I think that is standard practice for most movies, but people were like so responsive about those songs in particular. Interesting. That the studio like mandated that they were going to include those and told Marco like, don't write music for these scenes. Damn. With the with the Elfman piece, it's like it is incidental music, like, mm-hmm. and it makes so it makes sense for it to be different style than everything else. Mm-hmm. So I don't really understand why that would be a controversy. It's like the theater had old tracks 
lying around that they were going to use. It's not like they were using original, had an original composer in their theater department. Right. So they would just be using whatever sound that they had to hand, maybe mm. from an old movie. So that makes sense. But I do feel like the Dewey, Dewey theme, I could have let the guy take a crack at it. I also wrote that piece down because I was like, oh, this is really cool. Uh, nice. And then when I heard like that is one of the other pieces, I was like, oh. How did you how did you feel about the whole theater aspect of this? That Sydney is a theater major now. They're putting on some Greek production. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, it's uh, I don't know that. Like, I think when this movie goes into a movie theater and like looks at movies, it's really interesting and it's really like doing a double framing thing that is really cool. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's quite managing that same double framing on the stage, which I think is a possibility. I don't know. I think her being a theater student is like kind of funny. I think it's like, I think that's a good joke is <laughs> honestly what I think about it. Less more like more than anything else. And like a good excuse to have her like be surrounded by horrifying mask people. But like, would you really think that if she'd been rehearsing that scene over and over again, she wouldn't have already like, had a flat like some sort of horrible flashback well it does it does kind of seem like she she is kind of famous so they have just sort of given her like what seems like the lead role yeah but it seems like a thing where everyone else is at rehearsal and kind of doing stuff and she's just like showing up (laughs) every now and then and like slotting herself in basically yeah well, she's not part of the chorus. She's uh, playing Cassandra. Right. Yeah, that's true. They're putting on Agamemnon, which is also like, I guess that like ties into the whole theme because Agamemnon is about a mother who kills the person who killed her child. Mm. So there is there is like a theme running there with like Clytemnestra and uh, and M- Ms. Loomis and like her as and like the much more the much heavier theme that they hit in the movie, which is like her as a Cassandra like which is a term that we use that comes from that from that myth of like being somebody who can see everything coming and warns people and nobody's going to believe you Hmm. like you're the you're the person who sees every bad thing before it happens but you're the curse is you get to see it all and nobody will ever believe you i wasn't so sure how i felt about sydney in this movie and I really liked her in the first one. You remember uh-huh. that I yeah. was the most positive on her in the first one. Yeah. But I mean, I guess this is maybe how you would be, but she just seems like so kind of detached at all times mm-hmm. that it's kind of a tough like performance and character to be your lead. Yeah. She seems really distant and I do like her new makeover. It does make her seem a lot older. Yeah. Like it does seem like they are just adults now. Yeah, she does not have like a ton to do in this movie. I feel like even less than in the first one. Definitely less than the first one. I'm like so much more interested in pretty much everyone else. I'm more interested Mm -hmm. in Randy by a lot. Like when Randy and Dewey are there talking about like who could the killers be? I'm like, yes, like let's watch their (laughs) buddy comedy of like figuring this out. Like I'm into that. Uh When Randy and Dewey are doing the mid movie recap. Yeah, <laughs> explaining everything that's happened in the movie so far. Yeah, I really like Randy in this. I don't like his makeover. He's the only one who they have <laughs> made worse with some strange goatee. But it seems like right. I don't it know. It seems it's, like he would have it. It seems like he would, in fact, have that. Have made those choices. I think it's a bad move killing him. Honestly, I do too. 
I, I get that maybe you needed to kill one of the originals in this, uh-huh. and he is maybe the most expendable. But I think it's I just think it's a bad move. I I agree. I think he's a hell of a lot of fun, and also he's like our meta commentary. Mm-hmm. He's like our person in the world who knows what's going on in the with an eye outside of the world, sort of. Yeah. I feel like the first act of this movie kind of sets up a lot of thing, character things that don't totally get paid off. Uh-huh. Because they also bring back the thing from the first movie that he has like always kind of pined over Sydney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah we bring that back. And I feel like that might be a thing, but then he just gets killed and she doesn't, she never knows about it, you know? Yeah, it's rough. To really get into it on this movie. Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's a couple of like big things, like big ideas going on here that we should spend yeah. some time on. Yeah. First, uh, first and foremost, sequel thing. Mm-hmm. What is this movie saying about sequels? What is it saying about itself as a sequel? And like, does it pull it off? Is it a is it a sequel that's better than the original? I think definitely don't think this is better than the first movie. Yeah. Well, I think the first one just has such like good, clearly drawn characters. Mm-hmm. And I think they were maybe a little bit boxed into a corner here because they need new types of characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've done the bad boy. They've done like the funny stoner. They've done the popular girl, yeah. you know? And I, what I really missed about the first one that isn't really in this movie at all is the grounded, uh, uh-huh. the grounded dark violence of the first one. Yeah. Which in the first movie only exists in the, the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes. Yeah. But that is like the thing in the first movie that speaks to this is about something much bigger than this movie. Yeah. And this one doesn't have that, I don't think. But here's the other thing. Here's the other interesting insurance about that sequel thing what? is because at some point there's like this running theme that these characters are trying to name any sequels that are better than the original, right? Uh-huh. And at some point, when someone says Empire Strikes Back, better than Star Wars, and he goes, well, that's not a sequel. It's part of a trilogy. It was planned out from the beginning, which is what this movie was. Yeah. Interesting. This movie was written to be part two of three. Interesting. Sold with the first movie to be a trilogy. So that, to me, felt like meta-commentary about itself. Is that even true about Empire? No, not really. Not really. That So, whatever. But that was like an idea of like a 12-part series. But not, <laughs> give, not in the way us, this movie is. Give us 10, 11, and 12, George. Come on. <laughs> Come on, George. You know you want to. I'm sure he does want to. I want to know more about the midichlorians, George. I need to know. It would be so validating just to all the people on Reddit who <laughs> like hate this Disney Star Wars movies now. Uh-huh. If George came back and just made absolute garbage. <laughs> 10, 11, 12. 10, 11, and 12 personally produced exclusively by Lucasfilm. Nothing else. I guess That's Lucasfilm what one, is, two, and three were. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I guess Lucasfilm is now owned by Disney. So he just yeah. like starts his own new company. And George Film. George Film and privately produce Star War and <laughs> Stars War and <laughs> Stars War episodes 10, 11, and 12 because he never minded starting in the middle. 
And <laughs> then, we'll, yeah, we'll get, we'll get all that hot garbage that's been floating around in his brain since <laughs> whenever he read Dune and the Hero with a Thousand Faces back in the 70s. When he, when he sold it, he kept being like, oh, I'm, I'm still going to make movies. You're just not going to see them. He was like, I'm going to make movies for me and my friends, and I'm just going to show them to my friends, and no one will ever see them. So, like, has he? I don't know. I'd like to see George. We would love to have George on. We would love George if you're listening, and Please. I know you don't have much better to do right now. <laughs> what are you, okay, this this diversion has gone. George too far. has forty million dollars and nothing but time to kill. Yeah, come give us a million of that and be on our show for forty minutes. And then we'd have to do the special edition of the episode where we've added in um, noises over us talking and random Ex- extra CGI created, digitally created noises. Oh, I don't know. What do you think about the sequel stuff? It does like beg the question. I do think that he's correct when he says that Godfather Two is the better of those two. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's been so long. I can't. You know, I don't even know. Yeah. I used to think that Jurassic Park A Lost World was the sequel that outdoes its mm-hmm. predecessor. But I do think that Jurassic Park holds up in a way that all of the sequels don't. Yeah, I think Jurassic Park is better, but Lost World is my favorite. Man, Lost World is so much fun. In, so in this one, it's like, we're a sequel. Here's the rules for sequels. It's going to be bloodier. Yeah, it's which going it is. To, it is bloodier. It's going to have a higher body count. Which, which it does. does. And then there's a third thing that he doesn't, you never, and then he, <laughs> then he doesn't say it. And I really want to know what it was that you never do in the sequel. I'm someone who tends to like the sequel more. Mm. I would say that's my predisposition as opposed to like the popular film theory thing that is uh, cited in this film, which to me has always been because there's just like so much work you have to do in a first film to like establish characters and relationships Mm -hmm. that oftentimes it seems like by the end of the first film, you finally gotten to where you wanted to be the whole time. Yeah. So I love sequels because I love like seeing what has happened to these characters, like seeing their relationships. Now I love that you like start with everything on the board and you don't have to do that work. And then you just like knock the dominoes down basically. Mm. And for that reason, I, like, love the first act of this movie where we're seeing, like, what has become of everyone. And that stuff is really confidently directed, too, I would say. Like, all of the, like, meeting the cast again. Yeah. Introducing the new characters. I like the second reveal that it's uh, Mrs. Loomis, Miss Loomis, Mm -hmm. and that ties back to the first one. I didn't like the killer being Oliphant. Because I was just like, this guy hasn't... Like, when he showed up, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy is in this movie. (laughs) Because you really don't... You have not seen him since, like, the cafeteria singing scene, which was, like, probably an hour before he's revealed to be the killer. I kind of had my eye on him as a suspect from the beginning Mm. when they're, like, in class and he's, like, talking about film with Randy because that's, Mm. like, a big tell for the killers. That is true. That's where I Big started with my, with my suspicion for him. Yeah. Um, as if you've learned anything from Scream, it's that movie nerds are deeply, deeply suspicious people. <laughs> uh, not to be trusted whatsoever. But to be listened to, but be listened at to, least sure. once a week. At least once a week, if not more. 
but yeah, he is, he, it is kind of like out of left field. It, I do feel like it would have had more emotional impact if it was her boyfriend and her best friend. Maybe not the best friend. Cause she's also not, well, doesn't not really do it, much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she probably does more than all the fans. Yeah. She at least has a couple of funny lines. I also don't totally like his whole thing, which is that like Miss Loomis said, I will pay your college tuition if you kill some people for me. Uh-huh. And he's like, okay, I'll do that because I can just argue in court that I was inspired by scary movies and then I'll get off free. That's doing too much. That is like this movie doing too much of the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that this is on the movie's mind from the yeah. first movie where he has the whole like, Right. Movies don't create psychos, they make psychos more creative. That yeah. was the thing in the first movie. Yeah. So we know that this series like cares about that. And to like this one have the motivation be entirely based on like how the court systems work about this stuff, I was like But I think there I think that's like part of the cultural context that we're missing from not being in the nineties. Of like that whole everything going to trial now was like a big uh-huh. like a big thing in the nineties. Like think about how many nineties, late eighties and nineties movies are like court procedural films, you know, it's like people were into that. It was on the, it was on the mind and the idea that like somebody who very obviously was guilty uh, of a heinous crime could easily get off in court if they played it right, would have been on everybody's Mm -hmm. mind in the mid nineties, specifically because the OJ Simpson trial. Right. And I mean, he even mentions how he would get uh, Alan Dershowitz, who was the defense attorney for OJ Simpson, to be his defense attorney. He name drops a bunch of these like moral majority right wing Christian people of like, they'll all back, they'll pay my court fees because Mm -hmm. they want to say that like the minds of the youth are being rotted. I mean, I agree that it is a little on the nose and it doesn't make much sense as a motivation because like, are you really going to do that? And also like get your tuition paid for? Like, are you really, how are you balancing that in school? Like, right. you know, like show me the yeah. spreadsheets, man. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This is the time period of like, I'm thinking right around here. It was like the two life crew album, which is the first thing that like gets an explicit rating um, because there was such like a public uproar about lyrical content. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like around when mortal Kombat goes to court for like showing blood in video games. I did not know that Mortal Kombat went to court. And Nintendo was like, we will never put Mortal Kombat on a Nintendo system <laughs> in court. Um, Damn. And now, of course, it is and has been for forever. But and and the other thing is that there were a couple like not serial killings, but there were, I think, two real life incidents where people got killed and they blamed it on not the people themselves, but like people around them blamed it on the screen movies. Although they both happened after this. After this, after the second one? In 98, 99, wow. there were two separate incidents where people were like, they were watching Scream. And this is right before, which maybe we'll talk about a little more in three, Columbine. Mm-hmm. Um, the Columbine shooting, of course, which is 99, I think. And as a result of that, that's when they're like, oh, these kids must have done it because they're playing video games and watching movies. And that's like where they go to the go to Congress and like show them clips of everything to like show how violent stuff is. And one of the things they show is like the opening scene of the original Scream, 
Interesting. Is like screened in, I think, the Senate for like everyone there. Wow. Can you imagine what this country would be like straight up? Can you imagine what this country would be like if people who worked in the government watched horror movies? It would be a better place. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. I always wonder like at this moment in time specifically, Mm -hmm. what media do really conservative minded people enjoy? (laughs) Because like everything it's a, we're, well, we're in like a moment of storytelling where like the message of the movie is seemingly very important, mm-hmm. but like every movie is about how like <laughs> being powerful and greedy and part of the patriarchy is a bad thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No wonder they feel all that false sense of oppression. <laughs> oh, it's always an interesting show when we do these by ourselves. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the meta thing then. I think we've done this sequel thing to death. I think the meta thing is really smart. And I had no idea it was coming. Like that they have made a movie called Stab. Mm -hmm. I think that's such like a smart way for like this to continue happening in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, not just in this movie, but looking into the future. Like I now want to know, like in Scream Three, will they have made a stab too about the events of this movie? If I may spoil this for you just a little, uh-huh. I read the blurb for Scream Three. It is takes place on the set of them filming Stab Three. Whoa, that's wild. So if that's not just like, yeah, I'm stoked for whatever that is going to be. The I love too that it in the first movie she says. With my luck, Tori Spelling would play me in the movie. And then uh, it is Tori Spelling in this movie playing her. That's very funny. I also love going back to this thing from the first movie where Wes Craven was like, I don't want to make horror movies anymore because they're so misogynistic. Mm-hmm. I love that the version of Stab we see is like this really like sexed up, more violent version. Uh-huh. Like the It feels like the Hollywood version of the first scream you know? yeah and i love that in both this movie and in scream with the original halloween there are scenes that rely on like a bunch of people watching nudity on a sh- tv like within the world of the movie huh and in both of them he like doesn't show it like it's very purposeful that you don't see like hmm. the on-screen nudity that is and everyone else is watching and reacting to it's interesting also, the thing, the movie that he makes between, that Wes Craven makes between two and three mm-hmm. is, uh, it's called Music of the Heart. It's his only non-horror film. And it's like a middle-aged women <laughs> comedy about like a music teacher. No way. And just like, <laughs> I don't know. I just love him. I just love this adorable thing about Wes Craven being like, we need to treat the women better. <laughs> and like going and making this soft music movie yeah while he's like parroting how while he's parroting how like boob obsessed all these horror movies were in the 80s you know yeah it's very endearing to me it's very funny on the note of like treatment of people in films i think Mm. it's really interesting Mm -hmm. that this film starts with Mm -hmm. a, a black couple going to watch stab and like the woman does not want to go she doesn't like scary movies she wants Mm -hmm. to go watch like some sandra bullock rom-com or something yeah and 
then and then she her big argument for why she doesn't want to watch the movie although we also get the feeling she's just scared to watch the movie but her Mm -hmm. big argument to her boyfriend is that there's no black people in horror movies and when there are they get killed they're like the first people to die yeah then these two are the first two people to die yeah in this film so Mm -hmm. like there's some sort of meta statement going on there but i don't i don't i don't know and i think it would pay off better if either of her, like either of the other two black characters who show up later in the film had more to do and like felt mm-hmm. like they took a more active role in what was going on as a horror movie, it would feel like that trope had been worked over. But her friend gets her friend gets killed mm-hmm. and the cameraman, Joel, like is absent for <laughs> the end of the movie. Back he leaves and comes back. Uh, yeah. He has a couple of a good scenes in the beginning and then he comes back at the end. But he is entirely absent from the action at the end. And so it's like, is that your formula for having people of color survive your film? Right. Like that doesn't seem, I don't know if you've like hit the nail on the head. Or maybe it's just revolutionary in 1997 to say that. But mm. I don't know. Yeah, I felt really uncomfortable with this opening. Yeah. In no, in no small part because every single character in the first movie is white. And that first movie is a big ensemble cast. There are like 20 characters in that first movie and every single person is white. So then when we start this movie with this black couple played by uh, Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith. And it was, I was also uncomfortable with it because like there's this way they're talking that no one else Mm. in the movie is talking. And I was thinking about Kevin Williamson writing this dialogue Mm -hmm. like for black characters, which you haven't heard him write before. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the only thing they're talking about is like the black struggle. And I felt very uncomfortable with all this. And then that like really brutal violence done Mm -hmm. to a black woman as the first thing in this movie. I did think it was lessened, although not like erased, but like I was glad that there were other black characters in the movie after Mm -hmm. that. I mean, it would be just an unequivocal bad look (laughs) if there weren't. Yeah. (laughs) After doing that. But like the other thing I read, which like I was like ready to like come at this movie hard for this choice. And I still think that it doesn't really hold up. But the thing I read is that Jada Pinkett Smith said what she came to Wes Craven and to say was, this is her quote, I want to die the most horrific death that has ever happened in a horror movie. I want it to be long and excruciating. Okay. So I think she was maybe, you know, not, because maybe not like thinking about the optics, just saying like, I'm an incredible actress. At that moment, she was so hot in Hollywood. And she was just like, if I'm going to be in this movie for 10 minutes, I want to have the craziest death anyone's ever had. And And she does. It is nuts. And it is I mean, it's a deeply upsetting kill. It's horrible. And it is like, I feel like a lot in the same way that the last film like resonated with like a lot of stuff about like school shootings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like that opening feels like, like even more prescient now than it did whenever they did it. You know, like the sea of onlookers, like watching somebody really get killed and not caring because they're like watching people get killed for fun on the screen behind her. Also, just as people have started to actually get killed in movie theaters. Yeah. uh, I mean, the Dark Knight Rises shooting a few Mm -hmm. years ago. And then just last year, there was like 
a much smaller, but like a shooting in Texas at the purge screening in COVID oh. where I think like wow. five people got shot or something. Damn. So yeah, that felt like a part of the whole thing too. Yeah. But it's tough. Like she's Jada Pinkett Smith. She's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad she's in this movie and she does a great job and she dies the most horrible death, which is what she wants. Like I'm not yeah. here to say that like you can't do violence to an incredible actress who wants violence to be done against her yeah. because of the color of her skin. Like that's horrible. Yeah. But it is hard to watch because of that. Mm-hmm. And because of like the behind the scenes creators of this movie too. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. All complicated stuff that's in the air with this film. Yeah. She doesn't have a ton to do, but I love the little almost like isolated Sarah Michelle Keller scene. It is. It is such a good sequence, too. Isn't that Mm -hmm. incredibly tense? And that just feels like, I don't know, just like a little acknowledgement that she is like new and big in the horror scene, you know, and her like almost like a little passing of the torch is that she gets to like do one scene in this movie. Yeah. And totally kill it. Yeah. That made me wonder if those old Scooby-Doo movies hold up. Oh, is she Daphne in those old Scooby Doo's? Mm-hmm. Oh my God! And and, that, and the guy is uh, Stu from the last one is Shaggy. Yeah. Wow. And both of those movies are written solely by James Gunn. Wow. <laughs> I know the CGI doesn't hold up, and I know about the character assassination they do to my beloved Scrappy Doo, but <laughs> but I do wonder if they are maybe good actually. Maybe, maybe I I might I might sense an April Fool's double feature coming up. Oh no! Look at Zane on the hotline. <laughs> I do. I also really like Freddie Prince Jr., who is um is great in Star Wars Rebels, and he's Fred in those movies. So oh, cool. Okay, okay. Well, speaking of Sarah Michelle Gellar, let's move on. Best kill. What what is getting your award for the uh, best kill? I would say this includes the sequences. People are not actually killed, but like best tense horror sequence in this movie. Okay. Oh uh, well, if we're talking about best tense horror sequence, then I think it's got to be the sound room sequence with mm. Courtney Cox. That is oh like God. there is no one in this movie that I care more about than her. Uh, <laughs> there is like. It is like in in between. They're like passing in between these sound panels and like ducking around sound panels. Yeah. And like they're in a locked room and Dewey's there. And then when it like keeps escalating because like you see her go through the whole thing and you're like, oh my God, she's safe. And then Mm. Dewey comes in. You're like, no. So, and then you see him go through the whole thing over again. Yeah. It's super intense. There's this like incredible one shot where the camera is in the back and like Courtney Cox is in the foreground and Ghostface is in the background and she keeps moving forward through the studio that like seemingly never ends and you keep seeing like her jut to the other side and then Ghostface come around the corner and then her turn the other side for like three minutes and it's I mean it's like an amazing uh location to begin with but like it's gut-wrenching yeah and it's in a sound studio. So when Dewey's on the other side, then Dewey comes in and he's on the other side of the glass. He's like in the studio. She's on the other side. And mm-hmm. she's, she's trying to like get her attention or he's trying to get her attention or something. And they can't and soundproof. Like, yeah. They soundproof. They can't talk to, can't get each other's attention in time. And there's like only one door and she's, she's inside the room and Ghostface on the other side of the door. Yeah. And she can't leave and he can't get in. And it's just like, oh, what's going to happen? 
Yeah. Well, how about, how about for you then? What would you say? That was also my favorite. Although, like I said, it is a hard, it's a hard thing to do because this movie really brings it with the sequences. I guess I would probably rank them. Number one is that. Number two, I think I would have to give to the outdoor scene. The cell phone scene. Oh, yeah. The cell phone scene is intense. Which is so cool because it's so unlike anything we've seen in this series. Like they're in a wide open space in the daylight. And you're like, how is he going to make this scary? And it still works. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's so good. Then I'd go the car scene, which is so long and so big and so cool. Has really a really unfortunate don't ask, don't tell joke. (laughs) But yeah, like especially the moment you highlighted is probably like the most tense thing in the movie where they have to climb like repeatedly, like three times over the lap out the window of a passed out ghost face. Oh, and you know which other one I love? I love Sarah Michelle Gellar too. And I love the dress rehearsal sequence, mm. which doesn't end in anything. But I think that one is like really good of hers just like sort of getting PTSD in the middle of like the scene where she's surrounded by people with masks and knives. Yeah. And it's also like really unclear in that scene whether ghost faces briefly come in or not, or if she has mm-hmm. just imagined it. Mm-hmm. So it is. Yeah, I think it's it's an excellently executed scene because it's never you're he unsettles you just enough to let you know that you can't be sure yeah i love that sequence i will say i was a little uh i was a little let down by the climax i just thought for as like exciting and inventive as all those five we just uh-huh. listed were yeah yeah like the ultimate climax with uh laurie metcalf i thought was just not I was a little confused what was going on. I didn't think it was that well, like shot or that mm. tense in general. I would agree on like the action stuff, but I do think when it gets to her and Leah Schreiber and Loomis, like just the three of them together, mm. I think that that is like pretty tense acting wise. Mm-hmm. How about Peaches and Scream, our segment where we ask the hard hitting question <laughs> um, If you were in this movie, who would you date? Uh,. <laughs> I mean, wait, what did I say? Didn't I say Gail Weathers last time? Uh-huh. Is this going to be five five episodes of you saying Gail Weathers? Five episodes of you straight standing Courtney Cox. Incredible. <laughs> How would you guess Courtney Cox spells her first name? I was shocked to discover this today. I I don't even... What, okay, what is it? I, <laughs> I, would, I would guess C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. It's... C-O-U-R-T-E-N-E-Y. Courtney. Courtney Cox. Yeah. Uh, Is that your answer, though? Courtney? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, um, it's certainly, I can tell you this. It's none of the new characters. Yeah. It might be Leah Schreiber, honestly. Oh, my God. How have I not talked? How have we Cotton not talked weary. about Leah Schreiber yet? Dude, he's so good in this. I've got to say, like, sometimes you see a performance in the movie where... Mm-hmm it just kind of makes everyone else in the movie look bad. And that is how I felt about Leo Schreiber and the young cast of this movie. Like Mm. not the adults, but he has sort of, he really, I think like outclasses all the other teenagers. He's like doing a Cary Grant impression this entire movie, but is pulling it off with like such subtle (laughs) grace that it is, that it works. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll go with him. He's a little pushy. He's a little yeah, he's weird, intense. but he's a little intense. But I have certainly gotten myself into some 
know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> who would who would you date from this movie? Who would I date from this movie? Yeah, Emmett. Who would I date from this movie? Do you have to ask? There is a woman in this movie. She's blonde. She's the head of a sorority. Mm-hmm. She's played by Portia of Arrested Development fame. Oh my she god! Says, <laughs> she says, "Hi." No, really, I mean that. Hi. <laughs> Who would I date in this movie? Does it? Is it even a question? <laughs> that is such. That is such a good line. It, it is. is so good. She has like three lines, and they're all so good. All iconic. I thought she was Kim Petros at first, but the second she came on, I was like, "There we go. Uh, Done. Incredible. Sorted. What's left? MVP. MVP. Who should we take off? Should we take off the main three, or should we just take off Sydney? I don't know. I think like we should take off just Sydney again because we're going to be pressed. Otherwise, okay. Well, let's taking off Sydney. Who is your MVP for this movie? I think it's David Arquette. Mm. I think he's doing some weird in this movie, but I'm into it. He is. He is. <laughs> he is like deepening Dewey's character in a way where I feel like at, in the first movie, you're like, okay, Dewey is like kind of dumb, but uh-huh. kind of sweet. And that's about as like, he's, he's, you know, he's like a, a good older brother, the rare good cop. And mm-hmm. is like, just like a sweet guy. In this movie, he seems like, Whatever, like, slowness that Dewey had in the first one is, like, right weirdly exacerbated in this movie and is, like, joined with the, the like, physical alterations that he's doing as well. Is this a reaction? Is this, like, a PTSD thing? Is this, like, what is it? But then he also has a moment that is, like, really interesting where he's, like, talking, when he's talking to Gail and he's, like, Maybe, like, the reason that I act this way is so that, like, I can always have the upper hand in, like, social interactions with people. And then I was like, is Dewey, like, on the autism spectrum? Is that, like, is that what's going on here? He's, like, a very high-functioning person who doesn't have the greatest, like, interpersonal social skills, but is actually, like, way smarter than everyone around them, or at least like at least operating on that level and it's kind of gets talked down to all the time and just lets it happen because he's on top of all that other stuff is actually as sweet as as like we think he is mm-hmm. um, and just wants like people to accept him and that is like the simpler way which i thought was like i don't know if it's well executed but it's beautiful and it's like an interesting it's like an interesting thing to be going on with him and i think he plays it with enough like I don't ever think it's like like over the top or like grotesque yeah. or like like point like punching down or anything like that. If that is what they were intending, I don't know if it was. Who would you say your MVP is? I think I would give it to Liam Schreiber, mm-hmm. who we just gushed on. But I think he is so charming. <laughs> he's so charming in this movie. He has like he is the character who's doing ultimately the right things for the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. is that he sort of wants to be like famous and cool. And there is this like little live wire element to him, Mm -hmm. but he does ultimately make the right choices. And I, I just think there's something really satisfying in that ending there with him and Sydney. Yeah. 
they each get what they want from each other because she just wants the press to leave her alone. And yeah. all he wants is the attention. And they kind of yeah. get to do this nice crossing of the paths yeah. to each get where they want to be. And he is such a good moment where he's like, well, I'd love to tell you the story, but for everything, there is a time and a place and a price. <laughs> he just gives them his card. <laughs> it's so good. And he gets the last line of the movie, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope he's in more of these. I'm excited to potentially I have see a more. Bad feeling that he dies in the next one. That mm. is my guess. That's I don't actually know that, but that's just yeah. the feeling that I get. Yeah, I could definitely see it happening. Okay. Any final thoughts, Emmett, here on Scream Two? It's like definitely worth watching. Definitely mm-hmm. a good scare. Yeah. Check it out. Wait, final I think really the MVP is like Wes Craven. Like I think his directing on this one is like above and beyond in these sequences. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's even really like in contention, in competition, close competition with the first one for quality. Yeah. I will say if the, if the next two were on this level, I would be like perfectly content. Yeah. I, if the other two are like big dips from where this one is, Uh (laughs) I'd be not as excited to be honest. You know what I was thinking about while watching this movie? What's that? Do you think that in the UK, people think that our podcast is about rating butts in movies? One can only hope. Like, that has <laughs> got to be, like, if we have, a, if we have like, an, an unduly large but itinerant uh, <laughs> listenership in the UK, <laughs> I feel like that would be why obviously bums mean something a little different there i also think they use the word cinema like a little more regularly than we actually do Uh uh-huh like cinema is like a little bit of like kind of a silly pretentious word here right you're just gonna go to the you're gonna go to the cinema there yeah yeah evan are you ready to play bums the word i am i'm super excited i I have it's been so long since i've done a quiz by myself (laughs) like assured to like well i guess i'm not assured I'm less assured than ever, honestly. <laughs> um, we are going to be doing the worldwide top 10 highest grossing films of 1997. Oh, okay. We do these every now and then. This is a pretty good list. I have, I had at least heard of every movie on this list, and uh-huh. I suspect you have heard of them as well. I had seen about half of these. Cool. And I will say Scream 2 was number 21. What? On the list. Okay. Okay, let's kick it off. Number 10, 10th highest grossing film of 1997 is a British comedy. Wow, shockingly relevant to our discussion we were just having, which I did not intend. Uh, this is a movie about men getting naked. This is, it's, a, it's a comedy, it's a comedy about, about a group of naked. men uh-huh. who are like, in order to raise money for a close personal cause are going to like do a strip show where they all get completely naked and even though they're kind of average looking guys like the joke is that they are willing to be completely naked is this uh magic mike the british version that was definitely way better than the american version actually (laughs) no although probably an influence um the name is the name is the thing they're talking about the whole movie, which the name is another word for like being completely naked or, uh, or all, going all, all natural, all natural. No, 
because their thing is like other guys are much hotter with them, but they won't be all the way naked. And they these guys are willing to go all the way. Arse out? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> full blown? You're close. Uh, full frontal. You're you've you've kept the right part, but you're not there yet. Full Monty. The Full Monty. I did not know that that's what that the name of that movie referred to. There you are, number ten. The Full Monty. Uh, number nine. This is a movie I feel like just randomly comes up on the podcast a lot for reasons I don't really know, but it is a French sci-fi film, although it is in. English. It's kind of like a little bit of an older action star and like a hot young female star. She's playing an alien type character. He's playing like a weathered. Oh, the fifth element. The fifth element. Nicely done. I did not know that that was a French movie. And I think I said that last time. So I did know that that was a French movie. (laughs) <laughs> movie number eight this is a romantic comedy okay uh starring julia roberts as the lead it is i would say most notable today or the only reason i've ever heard of this movie is because it's like an early and pretty pivotal example of a queer character uh in that julia roberts has what we now kind of think of as a very stereotypical gay best friend but was like big deal at the time oh is this i'm gonna embarrass myself guessing names of 90s (laughs) rom-coms here the the name is referring to an event that is happening my best friend's wedding yes oh hell yeah (laughs) you got it hell yes Movie number seven. You're undefeated so far. This is a comedy film. It's sort of a showcase for uh, a big up-and-coming comedian of the 90s. This guy sort of does movies, and there are, like, pitches to them, but it's basically, like, the pitches. This guy. He's in a movie. He's in one movie a year. Come see it. And he's a comedian? He's a comedian. Is it an Eddie Murphy film? Nope. Okay. Eddie Murphy's 80s and 90s, I'd say. But this okay. is this is the next big guy after Eddie Murphy. And he's got like a goofy, big physicality. Oh, is it Will Ferrell? No. Is it a Will Ferrell movie? It's in between. This same year, I believe, uh-huh. this actor plays a Batman villain. Oh, okay. It's a... Uh... It's some friggin' Jim Carrey movie. Yes, it is a Jim Carrey movie. It's 1997. Okay, will you give me the pitch on it again? Just like this. I will. The pitch may reveal the movie to you. So I'm gonna... Oh, um, okay, wait. Is it Ace Ventura Pet Detective? Mm Mm-mm. Is it The Mask? Mm Mm-mm. Okay. It, It tells the story of a lawyer who has built his entire career on lying and finds himself cursed. Is that Liar Liar? Yes, that is correct. Curse to speak only the truth for a single day. That's a pretty good premise. I haven't seen that one. Movie number six. This might be the hardest one, to okay. be honest. Although this is kind of, it's a title. Uh-huh. Like this is a title that is a common phrase and it's also a movie title that people still reference. But 
I had no idea what this is about. It, this also says it's a 1997 rom-com, but don't let that get in Is your it head. the bucket list? Uh, no, this is sort of like older actors and it's an ensemble of three of them headlined by another Batman villain. Oh, oh, wait, it is Jack Nicholson, right? It is Jack Nicholson. So surprisingly, bucket list was not that far off. Jack, Jack Nicholson, Nicholson plays a other guys. plays a misanthropic, homophobic, and obsessive compulsive novelist. Oh, is it the Birdcage? No, no. His neighbors are Helen Hunt as a single mother with a chronically ill son, and Greg Kinnear as a gay artist. That's going to be a complete blank for me. Okay, I'll tell you. This is a title that I had heard, but I would never have been able to connect it with this uh-huh. movie. And I can't really tease it out anymore. Uh, this movie is as good as it gets. No kidding. Is that what that's, that movie's about? <laughs> yeah. Wow. The if that's poster as good for as it, it. If that's as good as it gets, I don't want to hear about it, man. The poster for it is just a picture of Jack Nicholson's face in sunglasses. And it says, brace yourself for Melvin. Wow. And somehow, here in 1997, this was the sixth highest grossing film of the year. Adults wanted to watch movies. About adult things. Okay, here we go. Top five, top five, top five. Top five, number five. This is a action thriller. It stars a guy we really like, an action adventure star. Harrison Ford? It is a Harrison Ford movie. Is it The Fugitive? Not The Fugitive. Not a Tom Clancy movie. Okay, I don't know if this gives away too much, but Uh it's hard to talk about without giving away. Okay. The tagline for this movie in the poster, which I'm looking at, it's Harrison Ford's face, and the tagline says, Harrison Ford is the President of the United States. Oh, is it Situation Room? No. Or some such thing? My Date with the President's Daughter. (laughs) No, I love that movie. (laughs) Uh, The Eagle Has Landed? You're you're close. Oh, Air Force One. Yes. Okay. Damn. Wow, that took too long. Okay, movie number four is in a famous series, a long-running series. Oh, this is a James Bond movie. This is the 18th James Bond movie. That's no help. <laughs> this is the second movie with Pierce Brosnan oh. playing James Bond. Is it Tomorrow Never Dies? It is. Unbelievable. That's the only Pierce Brosnan one I know. <laughs> it is. Well done. Very well done. Um, the villain is Jonathan Price. Oh. And the Bond girls are Michelle Yeoh and Terry Hatcher. Yeah. Okay, number three. This is uh, an original sci-fi movie. Well, actually, you know, based loosely on a comic book. I take it back. It is sort of a buddy cop movie within the sci-fi world. Old, gruff action star. Young, excited action star. Uncomfortably partnered together. Trying to do some sci-fi stuff. Trying to do some sci-fi stuff. And it spawns a series? Yep. Uh, four movies in this series across many years. The young star in this 
is a guy I really like and a guy we have almost never talked about on the podcast, but a huge staple of the 90s, known for film, TV, and music. Oh. Is it Justin Timberlake? No. <laughs> no. It's the only actor musician I'm aware of. Oh, uh, you're aware of this guy. He was no. for he was for a while the biggest actor on earth. Is it Will Smith? It's Will Smith. It's Will Smith and someone else. Mm-hmm. Playing... A grizzly, gruff old guy. Doesn't want to hang out with you. Doesn't want to be on the film set. Annoyed by everything you do. Is it Harrison Ford again? This <laughs> is not Harrison Ford. <laughs> I, I, okay. Plays a lot of other men. You know what? You know what, Emmett? This right. guy... Also a Batman villain. The older actor in this is also a Batman villain around this time. I cannot imagine that Danny DeVito and Will Smith are in the movie together. Okay, detach. Just <laughs> this one. You, it's got to be looking you in the face. I mean, this is the third highest grossing movie of the year. It's a huge hit and it stars Will Smith. And it's 1997. What sci-fi movies are Will Smith in? Oh, Independence Day. What other sci-fi movie is Will Smith in? You've got one of them. I am legend. There's another one. <laughs> That's, well, it's more of a horror. Um, a series. I am, like... <laughs> but I know you know this movie. rushed right now. The title is the name of the agency... Oh, my God. Men in Black. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, Lord. Men in Black with Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Wow. Okay, two more. Number two is a sequel. Is it Lost World? It is. Cool. The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Now, to give you a little idea of the scale here, the full Monty at number 10 made $257 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, Second place, The Lost World, Jurassic Park made $618 million. The film in number one made $1,843,000,000. It made triple what the second movie of the year did. Wow. It is an epic romance. Is it Titanic? It's Titanic. Oh, I thought that was 96. 97. Wow. Wow. Cool. And you want to know a crazy little connection here. Yeah. Is that... Uh, Titanic and Tomorrow Never Dies were both supposed to come out on December 12th, 1997. Mm-hmm. And when Scream 2 announced that it was coming out that day, they both moved a week later to not deal with the box office competition. Damn. They were both like, Scream 1 did so big, we don't want to put our movie up against Scream 2. That's crazy. And Titanic was like, gotta hightail it a week. <laughs> Hope some people come to see this. That's funny. <laughs> Well, congratulations, Emmett. A job well done. All but one, I believe, which was pretty impressive. Yeah, I'd I'd say that's about as good as it gets. (laughs) We're going to be back in 40 weeks talking about Jordan Peele's Nope. And next week, Emmett. I am so unbelievably... (laughs) I am so excited. Even though I know rationally that this is still several weeks away from me. (laughs) I am so excited. As we record this. Next week... We are talking Dune. Dune. It will be, once again, Jenny for two. Jenny for two. Damn. Yeah, really excited for that. So I guess this comes out on Tuesday, and then on Thursday night, 
Dune comes out Friday yeah. on HBO Max, Thursday night in theaters. And we'll be here next Tuesday on a regular time slot talking about Dune. And then next Friday with our finale and ranking for all the daddy matters. Oh, right, 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 right. And then two weeks from this episode coming out, we'll do Scream 3 and then Scream 4 and then a little something else. And then your Bumtober series. Yeah. Very exciting. Where's your hype level for Dune right now, Evan? That's me. I don't know. I've been waiting for it for so long. It's just, it's just like, what more can there be? You know, it's, I haven't really had this experience with a movie in a long time where I like really anticipated it coming out like that. Mm -hmm. And like, I have intentionally kept myself away from as much of the images and like previews. Mm -hmm. I've like watched the trail, each trailer as it came out one time. And like, that was it was like, Mm -hmm. can't like, can't do this too much. Don't want to overexpose myself because, you know, that thing where you like you see some of the stuff from the movie and you like build this perfect idea of what it could be given all of that. And then you're ultimately disappointed by what it is. A lot of fear Mm -hmm. of that going on. I do know that the full title of this film is Dune Part One, as you said last week. Uh, So, you know, we really, really out here hoping that there is a Dune Part Two. Not to mention Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. So, Denny has been talking about it being a trilogy. Okay. Of Dune Part One, Dune Part Two, Dune Messiah. That's an idea. <laughs> I feel like he's really skirting this, the stuff where it gets messy in those books. So, that might be a, <laughs> a really good call on his part, honestly. I have heard tangentially from one of our British friends mm-hmm. who may have the wrong idea about our podcast. But uh, because the movie's already out over there. It came out like a month earlier across the sea in countries where there isn't HBO Max because there's all this HBO Max skullduggery that resulted in it getting pushed back in America. Anyway, I heard tangentially that there's a lot in the movie that has not been shown in any capacity in the trailers. That's awesome. That's cool. Someone said like there are a ton of sequences in this movie that you have seen nothing of. What's that's there? really cool. I'm I'm very excited. How how's the the Dune book report coming? Uh, we couldn't possibly talk about it in screen. Um, oh yeah, no, no, no. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> thanks for listening. You guys to are this. the coolest. You are. All right, y'all, stay frosted. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 